I'm Jack Semlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2017 Strip Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Letting the Four R's of Nutrient Management Guide Your Strip Till System, is being brought to you by BlueJet. If this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series. Currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if there is another app you prefer for listening to podcasts, let us know. We'll make every effort to get it listed here as well. And by subscribing, that will allow you to get an alert when upcoming episodes in this series are released and an opportunity to go back and check out episodes from our 2016 series. Thanks again to BlueJet for sponsoring today's episode. For more than four decades, BlueJet has been an innovator in fertilizer injection and conservation tillage equipment. Over that time, large acre farmers have found BlueJet to be synonymous with durability, low maintenance, and return on investment. A founding title sponsor of the National Strip Tillage Conference, BlueJet's Strip Tracker was the first strip till implement to combine onboard fertilizer carrying capacities with a stretched and staggered row unit. Visit www.blu-jet.com or call them today at 800-658-3127. And a reminder to mark your calendar to attend the upcoming 4th Annual National Strip Tillage Conference on August 3rd and 4th in Omaha, Nebraska. Look for more information and updates coming soon on the conference homepage at www.striptillconference.com. Well, whether directly or indirectly, strip tillers often subscribe to the 4R philosophy of nutrient stewardship within their system. Right source, right rate, right time, and right place are cornerstones of conservation tillage. But adoption of these strategies is only part of the equation, says strip tiller David Meyerholtz from Gibsonburg, Ohio. Farming in an area that directly drains into the western Lake Erie Basin, he is an advocate for improving public awareness of proactive and responsible nutrient management practices. Cover crops, split nitrogen applications, and variable rate fertilizing are some of the ways that he's helping reduce runoff and erosion on his 1,500-acre corn, soybean, and wheat operation. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast brought to you by BlueJet, we welcome David in to discuss his experience and evolution developing a comprehensive fertility program based on the four cornerstones of nutrient management in Strip-Till. Thank you. I will start my session this uh, afternoon and just say that I'm not an agronomist. I'm a farmer, but I feel that we've got a lot of things in common in the fact that we look at strip-till and we look at things proactively. And we want to be leaders. We want to be ahead of the game before things become mandated to us. I was very fortunate, my father and I, we, we were nominated and, and were honored as being 4R advocates nationwide. We got an award at the Kamai Classic. And so that's why I have up here this 4R uh, signee, because as an advocate, we are, we are kind of pledged to spread the campaign, spread the news about how the farmers, the, the farm impl- 
input suppliers are being proactive and discussing ways of being nutrient stewardships and being leaders and, you know, try and make public positive images, comments, being visible about the things that we're doing for agriculture to feed the world and being sensitive to the environmental footprint that we're making out here. And, and so what I'm going to bring to the table today and discuss, you're probably doing, your neighbor's probably doing, but we just need to reiterate some things to make sure that we are doing things in a way that are conceived as being positive because no one wants to be mandated, but I'll give you some examples. Is anybody from Ohio here? Is anybody in the Lake Erie watershed here? Ontario, yes. And so, I, you, you may or may not know some of the things I'm going to share, but I just want you to know that it's something where if you're not proactive and you don't do some things together, um, there's going to be some mandates that you're not going to like. And so, I'm not going to be talking specifically about nutrients from an agronomic standpoint. I'm just talking about being able, being able to make sure that we can use nutrients in the future and that they don't become, you know, prohibited. Because right now, there are some things in Ohio that I'll get into that's uh, a concern. Now, we're all strip tillers. We have a keen interest in strip tilling. But what, what I wanted to bring out in this thing with you today is that strip tilling is being very proactive. And I think that you're a leader in the way that you're looking at things differently. Nutrient management. When I look at the strip till machine that I have, and I'm doing this, you know, I'm not looking at it as a tillage machine per se. I'm looking at it as my 4R nutrient plan. And, and I think one of, the, one of the things that we're looked at and, and reviewed by is because the nutrients that we're placing and how we're placing, and, and in my presentation here, just the fact that that strip-till machine is doing many things as it goes across the field. And so as we further enhance our use of strip-till and knowledge of strip-till, you know, there's things as far as advancements in technology that makes that more effective. We're making environmental footprints with that strip-till machine that I think is to a benefit, and I think it's going to be a trend that continues. Something that we're experiencing in Lake Erie Watershed is, wow, media and social media. Let me tell you, and I'll show you some examples when we go through this, and what, what that strip-till, I think, is doing to kind of counter some social media things. We're always interested in efficiencies and resources. Of course, increased productivity, and then New regulations, and uh, I'll share that with you that we're dealing with. And then, of course, stewardship is uh, underlying all this. Here's, here's just an example of my history with strip-till and just what we've done. You know, when I started strip-tilling, it was in 08, and all I wanted was a stale seed bed. It was the tillage aspect. Just get out there, make some strips. Um, I just felt that I liked stale seed bed planting. It, it helped bring all the soils in uniformity at springtime when it came time to plant. Warmer soils, it was the way to go. Soon after, we obviously understood that we could be more efficient by deep band placement of fertilizer. And then in 14 and 15, started doing more multiple product variable rates and trying to reduce the amount of nitrogen we're putting in the strip in the fall. 
And, and again, this is all fall strips. I can't spring strip on the soils that I have. It won't work. So if I don't get it done in the fall, it won't get done. But again, reduce the amount of nitrogen that we're, we're putting with that blend is, uh, has been some of the movement in uh, recent years. Um, as a, for our advocate, you know, I just want to make sure that we're just saying the same thing over to reiterate it um, about the four R's. Everyone's seen them, everybody knows them. It's not bad to reiterate it. But what the four R's has done to me and I'm sure it will do for you, is that the more you learn and the more you accept it, the more it becomes a core value in your business. And the more of it that you have to maybe reiterate with people, um, that you're taking attention and you're, you're kind of building a plan, building a cropping system based on those things. And, uh, and so I just wanted to share that. Now, this is where I'm at. And if you see this, this, this slide isn't very good, and in fact, it's kind of fuzzy as far as the counties, but right there sits the Lake Erie, and um, the thing that we're discussing is this thing right here, this body of water, Lake Erie, and right here, if you follow this line, that is the Maumee River, and that has been the hot spot, because the Maumee River drains into Lake Erie, and there's things about the Great Lakes that you never knew until things like this come up as far as statistics, but they say that this Maumee River is the largest watershed into Lake Erie that has the it drains the largest percentage of farmland into the Great Lakes. So of all the Great Lakes, this watershed drains the most farmland. And so just coincidentally, right out here, in Lake Erie is the city of Toledo's water source. So it just coincidentally happens, and this was placed there many, many years ago, but it's right here where the water comes out of the Maumee, and it's, you know, all this watershed of agricultural land. And so then, I'm sure you're aware of this, that two years ago yesterday, was this problem where the algae in Lake Erie, which they claim is, is fueled by phosphorus and it's all the farmer's fault, shuts down the water system for the t Toledo. Now I'm sitting at my farm, this hits on a Saturday morning, I've got drinking water, my neighbor's got drinking water, and you're watching the media 24-7 for the whole weekend, that's all that was on TV, was that Toledo was shut down and they're showing images of people screwing around trying to find water. I go to my well, I go to my water tap, I drink the water and I enjoy it, but I'm just thinking to myself, what's going to happen because of this? And I'm telling you what, if you ever seen any of the, any of the footage of this, I mean, it, it was farmer bashing left and right. And so, you know, instantly you know something's going to happen with this. Now, this was not a surprise because they were watching the algae. There's a lot of discussion about the fact that Toledo wasn't prepared themselves for it, but I will admit the algae was excessive. And so if you just kind of get some visuals of what happened then, it's, 
just some images. But it's things like this that starts getting attention. Facebook pages, pages of advocates for a clean Lake Erie. It's social media. It's the media just showing examples of how bad it is and then tying it to phosphorus and then having articles that come out and just, you know, want to say that the farmer is the only, only source of this. Uh, this is a, just another one of those media things that you become used to or aware of is this just, this is the city of Toledo and they're just putting on their website day to day, what is Lake Erie's drinking water situation? What are the beaches situation? So that you know, as Joe Public, how bad the algae is. So, you know, you've, I don't know if you've heard it, know of it, but in Ohio we have some laws that have just come about that deal with fertilizer and specifically to phosphorus. And so what we have to become in Ohio as farmers is that we have to become certified to spread fertilizer. And so this is just an example. You've got your pesticide license. That's always been in effect. But now you have to have a fertilizer certificate, go to meetings, go to sessions, and get your licensing. And, uh, and then, uh, by the way, you have to renew that every three years. So far, this has not been a challenge it's just a matter of a formality but it's but it's also a situation where it's just more education and uh, just the beginning process because now once they issue the certificate guess what they know where you live and they know uh, they know where to come to start auditing you for your records and things like that so so that's that's going to start happening we're going to have to be ready for audits because they know our name they know where we're located this is um, that was one, one law that got passed. The other law that got passed in Ohio deals right here, right where I live. And that is a law that was called Senate Bill 1, and it mandated when you can spread fertilizer, what kind of conditions, and whether it's manure or commercial fertilizer. And so if you, it may be difficult to read, but here it's, it's telling you that if you have manure, if you're spraying manure, you certainly can't do it when it's frozen. So right here, if it's froze or it's saturated, you can't spread fertilizer or spread manure. If you, there's a 50% chance of a rain, of a half inch rain in the next 24 hours, you can't spread. So even if it's dry and there's a chance, a 50% chance of a half inch shower in the next 24 hours, you can't spread manure. Now on fertilizer, they give you a little bit more latitude. And fertilizer, if it's, you, you can't spread fertilizer if there's a 50% chance that it's going to rain an inch in the next 24 hours. But lo and behold, there's a, there's a scapegoat here. And here is where the scapegoat is, is bingo if you incorporate within 24 hours you're you're fine so if it rains if it rains three inches the day after you've put the fertilizer in the ground you're fine as long as you incorporated it but but here is where here is where so they give you some other latitude if you're applying to a growing crop so example y drops 
you can go out and put wide drop, use a wide drop system, and you're covered because you're putting it in a growing crop. And then the other thing, here's where, here's where I think we as strip tillers have the advantage and where it's being proactive, and I think it's something that they're looking at us as a good example if it's incorporated. Of all these laws and all the things that we've been experiencing, one of, the, one of the positive things is that it's really starting to give strip tillers and banded subsurface fertilizer a lot of attention, a lot of support, a lot of appreciation. And so I just wanted to say and share that with you because that's, that's where I think being proactive in what we're doing and what we have to offer and what we're doing in our management, nutrient management plan, I think is being respected and, and being allowed and, and useful in, in the situation that we're in here. Again, this is, this is a law that targets this watershed, which is right where I'm at, and so these are some things that we're be having to live within. And, you know, it's just like, legally, I'm supposed to print a participation, a rainfall forecast. I'm supposed to print the forecast the day I go to spread fertilizer as documentation that I knew it was not going to rain. But since I'm strip tilling and I'm, a, I'm subsurface applying it, injecting it, I'm fr I get a free pass. I don't have to worry about that. So I can strip up till all the way up to the three inch rain and I'm, I'm fine because I've I've incorporated, I've injected it. Now the other thing that we're, we're experiencing is that extension, Ohio State Extension obviously are the drivers with the communication, the education, but, but they're also doing research. And the research is trying to determine how much phosphorus is legal, how much phosphorus are we allowed to have, and so this this is not law, but it's going to become a regulation. It's going to become a stewardship goal. And that, that's, that's this chart right here. And what they're going to do is they're going to say parts per million amount of phosphorus in your soil test. And so what they're saying is this is the range they're trying to get to. 15 to 30 parts per million in your soil sampling of phosphorus, P1, and if you are at 40 or above, it's not a good stewardship practice to add any. So you're starting to see some movement of dictating how much fertilizer you can use or essentially policing you. Here is, here is just some, a table. Uh, if you look at this, this P1 is what I'm talking about here. And so what they're saying is if you're at a P135 and you got a yield goal of 225, you still, you can still put phosphorus down, but if you're at 40 on your soil test, look, you're not allowed to put any additional phosphorus in the ground, you can't fertilize anymore. And so soil sampling is going to be regulated, it's going to be watched, but this, this is part of audits. So if you want to go out there and do this, this isn't law, 
but this is where they're going to probably evaluate your certification as fertilizer license holder. But it's, it, it, could, it could become law soon. Um, just an example for, to go through this, Dad and I decided that this last winter we'd just go out and pull some samples to see where, where we're at as far as looking at this law, these recommendations, and we were just kind of curious because we've been banding some fertilizer, phosphorus, for a couple of years. And so we went out and pulled a sample in, in the band. We pulled one uh, from a band from four years ago, and then we pulled a sample from where we've never banded. And here, is, here are those results. And what I'm saying is just, just a one-time soil sample, just trying to figure out where, where's, where's our phosphorus levels in, in a, on a farm in some bands that we've been doing for a couple of years. And again, this is just one trial, but to me it's positive. And, and I'm not an agronomist, I won't sit here and, and make up a lot of theory about this, but the thing that I was overjoyed by is that here we're within the range that we're supposed to be, but looky here, where we haven't banded, it's showing a lower phosphorus. So, you know, to me that's just an example of we're putting phosphorus where we're going to need it, we're not being old, we're not, we don't have an excessive amount of phosphorus, so we're within the range, we're within the mandate. I think that's a good example of trying to control phosphorus and utilizing it in the best way. And uh, again, I just wanted to throw that out. That's just one sample. I, I'm not saying that, that we're living within the law everywhere, but just giving you an example of what to look at when they're talking about levels of phosphorus. We'll get right back to David's discussion, but I want to again thank our sponsor, Blue Jet, for making this program possible. For more than four decades, Blue Jet has been an innovator in fertilizer injection and conservation tillage equipment. Over that time, large acre farmers have found Blue Jet to be synonymous with durability, low maintenance, and return on investment. A founding title sponsor of the National Strip Tillage Conference, Blue Jet's Strip Tracker was the first strip-till implement to combine onboard fertilizer carrying capacities with a stretched and staggered row unit. Visit www.blu-jet.com or call them today at 800-658-3127. Reflecting on David's comments thus far, he emphasized the importance for farmers to be proactive and collaborative in their nutrient management efforts. With increasing regulatory pressure in many parts of the country, keeping ahead of mandated application methods not only puts strip tillers in an advantageous position with input efficiency, but also fosters positive public perception, David says. Leaving as small an environmental footprint as possible is critical in his area, and taking advantage of practices such as subsurface banding are steps toward reducing that footprint. Let's jump back into the program now and hear more from David Meyerholtz on his use and recommendations for effectively using gypsum as a sulfur supplement in a strip-till system. Cover crops. Um, I've got experience with cover crops. 
I've heard a lot of things, a lot of positive things at this seminar. Actually, what I've heard and talked with others is that there's many people that are way ahead of us in cover crops. And cover crops for us in northwest Ohio has been there. It hasn't been, it hasn't been, gained a lot of what I would say popularity. It hasn't grown in a trend that quickly, but it's now it is because the law says that you can spread fertilizer or manure if there's a cover crop, if there's a growing crop. So now cover crops is a way of being a steward of the land, soil health, but it's also a way to be able to have some what would I say, freedom of applying fertilizers if you've got a growing crop, so strip-till strip -till or cover crops, fertilizing in, in um, cover crop situations is a benefit. It's not something that we're doing a lot of, but it's something that it will gain a lot more momentum. Multiple reasons, but the situation of phosphorus in the lake, obviously, the driver for us in cover crops. Uh, just, uh, just wanted to run through here. This is just kind of an example of some things that we're experimenting. You get, there's many of you ahead of us in this as far as just experience and doing some strip tilling and cover crops. This is a situation where they were able to do some spring strip tilling through an existing cover crop. It's also a situation where maybe strip tilling through a cover crop that was applied to a soybean field that got a good early establishment, but uh, just trying to look at other ways to utilize both cover crops and deep placement of phosphorus to stay in compliance with the Lake Erie watershed. Uh, gypsum. Anybody using gypsum? Okay, now, gypsum is something that Ohio State has come out in recent years as being a big advocate for, and it's something that they believe is, going, is helping the phosphorus situation for Lake Erie. Gypsum is something that we've started to use. Um, I'm using gypsum mainly for the sulfur and calcium uh, benefits that it has, but it's a, it's a product that has mutual benefits, and I uh, just want to share with you some advisement, some recommendation here with that. Gypsum is calcium sulfate, and uh, how it improves soil is that, uh, first of all, sulfate is an excellent source of sulfur nutrition for plants. And as we've scrubbed all the sulfur out of the air because of the Clean Air Acts, plants are becoming more and more deficient or hungry for sulfur, and the soil is not supplying enough of it. So gypsum is an excellent source for uh, sulfur, for plant nutrition, improving crop yields. It interacts with other nutrients. It's a macronutrient that interacts very strongly with nitrogen. And uh, so that's one benefit. 
Uh, other benefits are the way it interacts with the soil itself to aggregate the soil, uh, help improve aeration, water infiltration. Uh, it's very important that when it rains we get the water off the soil as quickly as we can while still storing enough of it for use between rainfall events and when we apply gypsum to soil it allows the water to move into the soil but doesn't keep the soil waterlogged so that air can also move into the soil and allow the crop to grow well. So what we've uh, been looking at and what we've been using is uh, this gypsum. Now gypsum is a uh, byproduct of the power plant and the power plant is located in Monroe, Michigan so it's fairly remote to us but gypsum is also a product that that isn't always available the supply isn't there so um, to be to be able to use it you kind of you got to stockpile it at times but Ohio State's been doing a lot of research with it they're you know they're they're looking at it as a way to help neutralize the phosphorus, help keep the phosphorus from leaching, getting in the water system, but but it's the sulfur and the calcium that we're looking at as a benefit. This is something that not everybody's really going to do. It's not something that there's a good an adequate supply for it, but it's just another proactive thing to help in the watershed that research has shown that can improve our situation. And this whole thing with the algae and the phosphorus in the lake, you know, it's been there. I, you know, there's a lot of us that just think that it's a cycle. It's just a natural cycle that it's, it's, just, it's just coming to the forefront a little bit more in the recent years because of some type of cycle. Now, I think, I think that there's certainly a lot of contributions to this phosphorus issue in the lake, but but we're trying to do some things to be proactive to try and lessen the target on our back as far as being the reason that this algae bloom is what it is on the lake. Now this year, in 2016, there hasn't been an algae outbreak. Usually about August is when this thing will flare up if it's going to do it. And, and you know, it's one of those things where the media actually when it gets to be this time of year we'll start like building up you know it's kind of like preparing for the super bowl they actually almost have commercials of let's go watch the lake it's going to happen we got to be careful they're giving forecasts in the weather almost that this algae is going to build up and, and be a problem but this year it hasn't been a problem well we've also in northwest ohio experienced a pretty sizable drought so we haven't had excessive rains, but I will say that something that concerns me is it's still evident because some of the rivers have got some algae in it that typically don't, that usually get washed out to the lake. So some of our cities that are getting their water sources from the rivers are starting to be a little cautious because the algae is present. It's not in the lake so much, it's still kind of stagnant in the rivers that uh, just haven't had a lot of water to wash them out. Um, next, just trying to give you an example of some things that we're doing on the farm that go to variable rates. These are things I'm sure that most of you already have been doing. 
and, and that's just creating management zones to look at ways to uh, justify. This goes back to trying to put fertilizer, variable rate it, and justify why you're using the amounts that you're using. And we're, gonna, we're using different ways and methods of building management zones, whether it's Veris data, whether it's yield data, uh, using multiple uh, soybean yields and corn yields to build what I call our management zones. And here's an example of just management zones that we've come up with. And what I will point out to you is just the acreage here. Uh, there are some grants, there are some NRCS programs that we're involved with where they, they have determined on variable rate fertilization, variable rate applications, they want, we're being like instructed that they need to be 12 acres or less is what they want management zones to be. So, so that's why I'm just showing this as an example of some of the things that we're doing with variable rates are using our data and our philosophy on how to build those zones, but then part of it's also with some funding, some grant funding that is available to us, we're still being kind of dictated about what size zones we, sh we can be working with. Um, now, we just got in a discussion around, was anybody, who was at the round table discussion with whether, the, whether to um, move or not move with your strip tilling from year to year? And so, in that discussion, we got to talking about whether you're moving or not moving with your strip and then where you're pulling your samples. I'm just saying, in our situation, we're pulling samples according to Ohio State, and what they've been suggesting is that we should pull a sample in the previous strip and pull two samples outside the strip, is what, what we're doing with soil sampling, sampling at this time. But, you know, soil sampling and, and looking at some of this stuff as far as mandated work, what your levels are going to be is going to be a moving target because every time you go to soil sample, you're going to get different results. So we're still trying to figure out how, I mean, sure we've got hot spots, but then we've got a lot of other spots that are low in phosphorus. So it's just, I guess what I'm saying is trying to determine where this is going as far as what you're going to be mandated to do and what kind of laws and ranges you're going to live within, and, and, and it's going to be ever evolving. Uh, this is just an example of some, some potash variable rates. Um, Nitrogen, uh, doing the same that most people are doing, variable rates. Uh, part, of, part of the grant funds, grant programs that NRCS is doing is that if you're going to do variable rate uh, fertilizers, they want nitrogen as part of that, and they want, they want nitrogen in the fall reduced to a minimum, um, almost none. Uh, actually, right now, there's some programs out there where the only nitrogen you're allowed to, to apply in the fall is just what comes with your commercial grade fertilizer blend. You know, your, your map that's got some nitrogen with it. But um, just there's some things that they're, phosphorus is number one, but you can tell and you can understand that it's going to lead with your other inputs being dictated too. So you might as well get used to it, you might as well get proactive. And so just giving examples of some things and of course prescription seeding. 
This, this next item here I just wanted to share with you. Um, we've, got a, we've got a situation where it comes to a, an Asiatic garden beetle. It's a, uh, it's a pest that has become a problem on our sands. And uh, I just wanted to show an example of just using technology, um, using variable rates, but also being able to use that not only in fertilizer and seed, but we're doing some things to try and do some IPM targets with some pests with this, uh, with some um, insecticides on the planter. So with that, I uh, just wanted to conclude that uh, we're, what we're doing on the farm with uh, being proactive in the four R's and, and how we're doing things with um, phosphorus and dealing with social media and, and the new regulations, we're trying to do as a collective business as a collective effort with suppliers and farmers, neighbors, friends, and I just wanted to share this slide with you that, you know, none of what we're doing or there isn't anything we can do if they don't have everyone involved. And so I just wanted to share some examples of the fact that this 4R and addressing our nutrient management plans is a combination of multiple people, multiple businesses because it's amazing, it's amazing how much this kind of situation with media and the attention of the phosphorus pulls people together. Your neighbors, your friends, your suppliers, because everyone wants to be, uh, everybody wants to help. Now, of course, there's some people that will ignore it. There's some people that will be proactive. And then there's some people that will just try and blame others. But, you know, I just, wanted to bring about this, this slide, just or this program here to uh, foster some 4R advocacy things and then also um, just give you an example of things that I think may become apparent nationwide with some of the regulations. With that, is there any questions? I would, I would tell you that uh, they're probably reducing rates about 20% is all. Not, not a great amount, um, but we also we also are trying to we're also trying to be more efficient, like you say. And I think it's something where the strip till um, application allows us to be a little bit more proactive and quicker to respond to this. And I think that we've got a lot more support in being able to continue to use nutrients, where I think the the broadcast spreading surface applying is going to be on the way out. How soon, I don't know, um, but it's a concern that we're going to be pretty limited on what ways we can apply that fertilizer. Good question. Um, my plan B is no tilling. Okay, that's my plan B, and if I can't get my strip, fall strips made, I will go to a, uh, I will go to a broadcast if I need it. If I need the fertilizer, I will go to a broadcast, but then I'm living within the law that I can't do it if it's going to rain within the next 24 hours unless I incorporate it. But typically, I, you know, getting all the strip tilling done in the fall is um, a goal. It doesn't always happen. So then my plan B is use, uh, no tilling in the spring, using my starter, and if the starter isn't enough for the phosphorus, I'm going to have to do 
broadcast spread it, but I'm going to have to broadcast spread it when the ground's not frozen and when I can incorporate it. And then that incorporation will probably just be a, a light vertical tiller. Thank you, David, for sharing your personal experience and advice on following the four R's of nutrient management to better your strip-till system. And again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Blue Jet, for helping make this Strip-Till Farmer podcast series possible. And I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessetermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. And if you haven't done so already, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series in iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. And you can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free Strip-Till Strategies e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptillfarmr and on our Strip-Till Farmer Facebook page. Finally, another invitation to come out and attend the 4th Annual National Strip Tillage Conference coming up on August 3rd and 4th in Omaha, Nebraska. Look for more information and updates on the conference homepage at www.striptillconference.com. Well, I hope that you join us again on March 2nd for the next episode in our 2017 podcast series, Setting Up Your Strip Till Rig for an Ideal Seedbed where Iowa State University Ag Engineer Mark Hanna will share best practices for berm building and row unit setups on strip-till rigs. For David Meyer Holtz, Blue Jet, and our entire staff here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Jack Simlicka. Thanks for listening.